And now it's time for Matt Moberg. Thank you, Debbie. Hey, good evening, you guys. Happy Wednesday. Felt like a Sunday the whole entire day for me, but um, it is Wednesday. I'm glad we're doing this. It's good to try a little curveball in the midst of the regular program schedule. I'm going to tell you something right now out of the gates. Let's just be fully transparent and let you know that I'm having the weirdest thing. I'm looking at this, this compilation of notes that I have put blood, sweat, and tears into compiling. Not necessarily, necessarily like a semblance of order, but notes. And the words, they're, they're all blurry to me right now. I don't know if that's like a medical concern. If there's a doctor here, just be on call and be ready to jump in in case something wild happens. Until my eyes settle down, though, and the words come clear, and this is some kind of, you know, nourishing message to offer up to you, let's start from the start. We are in the midst of this series right now called It's Not You, Don't Worry, Take a Seat, Calm Down, Because It's Everything. We are trying to commit to the practice of radical okayness in a culture that requires anxiety, and we're basing it all off of Eric Minton's book of the same title, which Debbie and I were just talking prior to. We're getting to the latter portion of it. We're in the home stretch right now of this book, and a lot of people are like, this book is starting to piss me off a little bit more than I anticipated, and that's good. Honestly, one of the reasons why we were so energetic about this and enthusiastic about it was just, in my experience, pardon me if I'm projecting, but a lot of times in church culture, when you jump on top of a book of any kind that they offer to you from the pulpit, we're asking for you to nod your head and affirm everything inside the book and just get along nicely and maintain the status quo at all costs. This is one that we're hoping is going to ruffle some feathers hoping it's going to make you ask new questions, hoping it's going to step on some toes, hoping it's going to shift some kind of paradigm that you've been holding for a while now to make you reconsider old things in a brand new way. And I think for me personally, this book has done that. And so I am uh, excited to meet the end of this. We're going to talk about deconstruction tonight for a brief moment. I also will say out of the gates, this is a weighted and heavy and definitely complicated conversation. And so I will stay after in this spot right here if anybody wants to have a further conversation around anything that is offered up tonight, and Debbie will too. I don't know if she actually will. Debbie, you will too. <laughs> Debbie will definitely be there as well. If it makes you more comfortable knowing that Debbie, Debbie's going to be here, that is exactly what's about to happen. I also want to say this, that we say it before every sermon, regardless of whether or not you find anything helpful or clarifying or empowering or equipping inside of the message offered up tonight. The number one thing we want you to know when you walk into this space, the number one thing we want you to walk out with is the realization and recognition that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Who you are, the core, that you are the love, the beloved child of God, period, with no proof required. That's the number one thing we want you to hear in this space. Everything else is is important, but not as important as that. This past Saturday... I took my child. Would you look at that face right there? He is there at Trout Lake Camp. That is a three and a half hour drive up north past Crosby, Minnesota. That's the only town I can recall um, that him and I went on. And it was awesome. It was a beautiful trip. Just because, like, I'm not saying, like, I'm overrun with kids by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I have three kids. But it was really good to have, like, that one-on-one time. Just to be able to, you know, connect in between his Nintendo and, and whatever. It was good but also because I got the chance to bring him to Trout Lake Camp, which might mean absolutely nothing to you, but means a whole lot to me. Trout Lake 
To which I told him, you guys would have loved this crash and burn attempt. I try to have one of those moments with my son where it's like someday he's going to write a memoir and chapter one is going to be about this moment right here. Where I looked at him, I go, but you need to understand that you are stepping not just into a camp, but into a tradition. Like your great grandfather <laughs> went to this camp. Your grandpa and your uncles went to this camp. And you know what? Your dad, he went to this camp. Matter of fact, I pulled over on the side of the road and I pulled up Google Earth and I showed him the very tree where I first fell in love with this girl named Antoinette, who, kid you not, for the first three days of our relationship, I was convinced her name was Internet. <laughs> I just was. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it was for my 15-year-old counselor when I said, have you seen internet around here? <laughs> and he said, have you seen a doctor? You need some help right now. I was trying to lay out for why, though, this space mattered a lot to me. It mattered a lot to my parents. It mattered a lot to my brothers and sisters because this is one of the first spaces that made us consider things of God, encounter new conversations about God, strangely warm our hearts to God, Take seriously these things that we have had passed down to us into our own hands and ask what do they actually mean to us right now. This space matters right here. And so I brought him to the camp and I put him in his, that's called King's Castle, that's his cabin, and he is like beaming. He's excited. He came home today. Lauren went, made the trip today. I want you to know that in case you were concerned about the health of my back from carrying, carrying all the parental responsibilities. Lauren helps out every now and then. Okay, Martha. <laughs> but when we got to the camp, he was, um, he was that right there. And then I left. And, you know, on the drive home, I started to consider a little bit further. Just if I could remember for myself what it was like in those first moments right there. Not just at the camp, but in all those first moments when you first start to get invited into the conversations of God when you first start to have your mind pushed to consider weightier matters beyond what your, I guess it was like an NS, what was it called, N64? What was the original, you guys know what I'm talking about? Not Super Nintendo. Doesn't matter anymore, I'm over it. <laughs> when you get pushed to the weightier matters and ask questions about these things that you've always assumed kind of just to be in place, what was it like for me? If I'm honest with you, I went from like smile ear to ear, excited for Wyatt, to the, by the time I got to Lake Malax, my heart that was strangely warmed suddenly grew a little bit cool. Because I started to have all these old conversations come back to me. I remember one conversation at, at Trout Lake in particular, where for the first time in my life, I had gone to a chapel message and the guy on the pulpit said to us that, um, you know, Christ died so that God's wrath could be quenched. To which in the post-game cabin conversation, I asked my 15-year-old counselor, I says, let me just get this straight. I was seventh grade. God killed God's son to make sure that God's anger wouldn't result in God killing us. But God being God is the creator of this rules. Could you break that down a little bit further? <laughs> could you make sense of that? And my counselor said... It, this is what it is, man. <laughs> this kid is like in a hot mess. But again, it wasn't limited to that camp experience in itself. I think about all of my youth ministry experiences, be it at Castaway's Young Life Guy or, or Camp Malibu leading other kids or um, in church lock-ins 
you know, at, at Calvary Baptist Church in Roseville, Minnesota, all these different conversations. And oftentimes, as I was driving through Crosby, Minnesota, and past Lake Mille Lacs, all these places, I was having these flashbacks to these moments where I'm thinking about another time where I sat in the back pew while our youth minister preached with passion about how, first and foremost, no matter how the world outside might try to identify me or make me feel about myself, it's important, it's imperative that you understand that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And I racked my brain trying to remember, did anybody ever tell me that I was a beloved child of God, loved as is? And I couldn't recall a moment. I left that camp, left Wyatt, smiling, excited, about all that he was going to take in at that space. But then I got concerned about the things he would take home. The things that I picked up in spaces of that kind that has taken me decades to uproot. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Does that ring true for anybody else? You know, part of it I started thinking about this morning was maybe I am, uh, I'm not trying to paint myself as a victim of any kind whatsoever, but I, I wonder if I am even complicit in the problem. Because like I said earlier on, we are talking about deconstruction tonight, and if memory serves me correct, that is always what my youth pastors and pastors have wanted from me. Hear me out. Because as early as I can recall, even actually even in my time leading in youth ministry with Young Life or Treehouse or places of the sort, we have constantly heard from parents and pastors alike how we want our kids, our students, to have a faith of their own. We want our kids to encounter these things, encounter these conversations, sit in these kinds of spaces so that they can actually interrogate it for themselves, come up with their own kind of questions, pursue their own kind of answers, challenge things, make it real for themselves and not just outside of some like obligatory move to please mom and dad. We have for the longest time, I have heard from the longest time, parents, pastors, leaders of camps, leaders at lock-in say to me that we hope this space tonight will lead you to experience your faith as a faith that is your own. It's just that the presumption underneath it is that when we ask those questions, we would fall back on the old answers. And if we didn't, the home that we grew up in would suddenly feel a little bit like a house that we no longer belonged in. Sheems, we were together this week. Trappy, Emily, we were together this week. Debbie, we sat around the table this week and we talked about just different pieces of the table and what makes us who we are. And one of the things that came up and I believe to be true is we're a space where people feel safe enough to ask questions about the faith that they've carried, be it for five minutes or for five years or for five decades. We want to be that space where you feel safe. Presuppose inside of something like that is the idea that there were spaces that were unsafe. Spaces where you weren't allowed to ask questions of that sort. And I'm just going to say cards on the table. I don't know that those spaces, spaces actually exist. Like, I know we can easily come up with cartoon characters of villains, but in my experience and in my encounters, and even in the most conservative of churches, I've never heard a pastor say, you are not allowed to question in this space. I've never heard somebody say that you are not allowed to actually think differently in this space. It's just that once you did, you found out you weren't allowed. You found out you couldn't get there. 
So I'm thinking about all these things with deconstruction. I'm thinking about these things as I'm driving three and a half hours back from Trout Lake Camp, leaving my beautiful son there. And I'm remembering this moment that Eric Minton draws to mind in his, in his chapter on reparentification, where he asks the question, when we think about the way that religion has at times, though it's set out to be a blessing, has actually been experienced as a burden, has replicated the experience of Isaac with his dad, Abram, Abraham, at the foot of Mount Moriah. You remember the story. Abraham wakes up one morning. He hears God's voice saying, I need you to kill your son, Isaac. And let me be clear, it's the one that you love. That was the religious impulse that was perceived in that moment. And I think the most heartbreaking part of this text is not just Abraham's disregard for the conditions of his own heart and his willingness to go along with such an absurd and monstrous plan, but the fact that he got up early the next morning to do so. Wasted no time, got up out of bed the next morning, brought his son. Minton draws to mind this moment where he takes his boy across the land to the foot of Mount Moriah, and on the third day, when the time is right, he asks his son, to carry the firewood up to the top, not knowing that he's participating in his own sacrifice. This is what some of the concerns are that I have when I dropped Wyatt off. I'm just letting you in on my own paranoia right here. Are there things that I am putting in Wyatt's hands that will not be easy for him to set down even though he really should? Are there toxic seeds I'm planting in the soil of his story that will not bear the kind of fruit that Christ promised we should have? What are the things that you are carrying up Mount Moriah not knowing that you are participating in your own sacrifice? What are the fear flags in the back of your mind that are keeping you small even though Christ called you to live wide and expansive and inclusive and big? Christ called you to freedom. Christ called you to peace. What is the firewood in your arms that you are walking up Mount Moriah convinced that regardless of whether or not you want to be doing so, it's what you have to actually be doing? One of the things I've been thinking about as we think about the matters of uh, deconstruction, and I recognize that for some people this image right here about carrying firewood and, and, and comparing and drawing the parallel to our own religious upbringing or the things we picked up along the way that it might be too dramatic, might be too dark, but I think it rings true. And one of the questions that immediately follows out of that is, is why is it true? Why are things the way that we are? Like even if we understand them to be problematic or dangerous or adverse to our own growth and expansion, why do we continue to pay rent on these things that we are carrying even though they've long been past eviction. Well, part of it goes back to that conversation I had at camp when I was in seventh grade. When the pastor from the front said that you are a rotten, broken sinner from the core, that you are a worm, and so how dare you have the audacity to actually believe that you are capable and qualified of discerning what is right and going against the teachings that you were taught. You are sinful, not beloved. You are broken, not whole. You are unacceptable. But if you agree to these codes in the creeds at hand, then you can be cleansed enough to be whole. How dare you? And so you walk with that crippling reminder that you are not qualified nor capable to actually possess the, the qualities required to discern. 
and you never actually get around to doing so. The question that I always have when it comes to that right there then is that if it's true, if what I am is actually just a worm and you yourself are oblivious to my worth, then what do I do with Jesus when he says that the kingdom of God is within you? Or, or, you know, you take that into account. What do I do with Jesus when he says that that kingdom of God that's within you, if I've already given you the GPS location and told you where it is that you need to look, even though everybody else from the front of the pulpit has told you not to look there, what do I do when Jesus says, listen, you're going to prioritize many different things. There's going to be many things that you will pursue, many things you will want, many things you will set your heart after. But there's one thing you need to keep in mind. Seek first the kingdom of God parentheses that is within you. Can you imagine how crippling that is when you are told that you are a worm, you are oblivious to your own worth, you are not aware of how God has called you more than conquerors, that God has given you every um, privilege that that is allotted to those in the heavenly ranks, that God has equipped you to thrive and discern, how God saves you through discernment, not outside of discernment. Can you imagine being oblivious to the kingdom within you and hoping that you'll find it outside of you? Being told that it can only be found outside of you. That's not the only complication at play. Because as everybody that was raised in the evangelical church knows, it's not just a matter of believing that you are incapable of actually coming up with your own beliefs or discerning the truth for yourself. The stakes are very high. From an early age, we were told it was implanted into us at a redundant rate that at the end of all of your days, when your time on here is done, where you will go is either to a place of ultimate bliss or a place of ultimate misery. There's no middle class in the eternal realms. It's either the purest of joy or the purest of pain. So how do we determine what goes what determines our destination in between the two? Well, again, the upbringing would say that, you know, well, what do you believe, Ben Trappy? What's actually in your heart? I can tell you from my own, like, Baptist upbringing that even if there was a liberation movement in the streets and somebody went out of their way to serve the poor, we would give this tepid golf clap from the pulpit in the congregation and we would always offer the caveat, the reminder attached to our praise that said, remember though, we are saved by faith, not by works. What is faith? Well, that's believing in Jesus. So does that mean that I just have to believe in Jesus as my Savior? Well, it's not just that. You have to have the right beliefs. You have to believe that Jesus is your Savior and that Jesus is co-substantial, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus was... You have to have the right beliefs about Jesus. Imagine the weight we have put on our children, the firewood we placed in their arms and asked them to climb up the mountains when we said... At your young age, I know you don't understand the world around you. You've yet to encounter the person within you, but you need to have the ability to properly arrange your intellectual furniture because your access to pure bliss and sidestepping of the pure pain requires you to have the proper and right beliefs. Does this sound like Jesus to you? This is why again and again, When we talk about deconstruction, we are not talking about a thing that is outside of the act of devotion. Deconstruction is how you clear the debris to find out what is real. Deconstruction is an act of love. 
To preservationists, it might feel like destruction. But everything that we deem to be valuable, everything that we deem to be of importance and significance in our lives, we ask questions about, we hold up and we look at it objectively and we turn it around and we say, is this what we thought that it was? When I got married, it's not like right away we're like, I enjoy how you look, I hope you enjoy me, let's tie the note and make some, no, tell me about yourself. We bought a house, we got an inspection, we, got the under, we wanted to know what the groundwork around us looked like. Everything that we deem to be of value and significance, we ask further questions about why would the same not be true of our faith? Everything embedded in, this, in the psyche of growth, the process of going from child to adult, requires a process of differentiation, also known as deconstruction. You know, there are rabbis out there today that still actually contend that in the Garden of Eden story, the story of creation itself, they ask the question, why do you think that God put the one tree that you were told that you could not touch directly in the center of the garden? Why not put that tree in the far corners where there were shadows or hide it behind a waterfall? Why put it in the center where at all times you are at risk of coming in contact with that tree? Perhaps it's because you are at risk of coming in contact with that tree. Perhaps it's because God understood that you can be in the womb nine months and you can be in your parents' house for a certain time, but at some point, you have to wean. At some point, there has to be space. At some point, the faith of theirs has to become a faith of your own and not just regurgitated matter, but in something that is significant and something that is true. Deconstruction is the pursuit of what is actually true. Not just memorize things that you've heard from authority figures in the past, but what do you actually believe is true? Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you got to lose your life. Matter of fact, if you look at the whole of Jesus' ministry, it's actually amazing. When you, please do this when you go home later tonight. If you study the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and John as well, and you consider what is Jesus like most redundant about, I would argue that Jesus is most redundant with his invitation to deconstruct. You have heard it said, but I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it becomes uh, new wine. You can't put that in old wineskins. Don't even bother trying to do that. You want to lose your life? You want to find your life? Tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Push back on all the religious authorities who say everything is black and white and crystal clear, and here's what it is, regurgitate it to your kids and move on. Every time, Jesus is the complicated gray matter that enters into the scene and says, it's wider than you think. Be gentle. Be open. And so I want to have this conversation about deconstruction. Debbie, my way too long already. This is just a bunch of rambling. Oh, for real? Okay. It's too long. But I want to stick around because I understand, like, this is not, you know, especially if you are somebody that is going through this process by yourself, when you finally mustered up the courage to ask new questions for yourself, that can be a hard and lonely thing because in the back of your mind, you have stakes that are real high and you have an insecurity that is real deep. And there's no reason you should have to go through that alone. One of the number one mantras, if you will, that Lauren and I have approached with our faith, with our theology, with our scripture is this understanding, this paradigm that says... We can believe with passion and heart and head and everything in between, but at the end of the day, we recognize that we hold it with humble hands and we are merely building sandcastles in a world of never-ending tides. 
We're making this, this is what we see right now, recognizing that it might not be what we see forever. Eventually the tide will come in and we'll be open to where the spirit is pulling us next. Jesus says you never know where the wind's going to blow. But the wind, the wind is bloating. You do know. Will you go with it? Jesus, I don't know if anything I said was clear tonight. I don't know if it was weird. But God, I do think this is important. Because I think that this is so central to your work. God, I think that you were so insistent upon us walking with humble hands and a gentle spirit and open to wherever the spirit was blowing next. And God, I worry about the fact that much of the church today is worried about people deconstructing, asking questions. Now, what if the revival the church has always wanted and needed comes in the forms of deconstruction? Are we open to where those winds are blowing? Are we open to honesty? Are we open to pursuing what's next? even if it means calling into question what's not. Christ, you are good. Christ, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I have lots of thoughts, but perhaps unconventionally for this time, which is when we're about to go into communion together. I'm just gonna ask Matt and Debbie to trust me on this one. I was just impressed. Um, as Matt was preaching, there were a lot of heads nodding. And so if you are a person who is feeling the invitation to deconstruction, and maybe that feels a little bit like walking into a wilderness, um, I wanna let you know that deconstruction, that its natural resolution is reconstructing into something more beautiful, something more like Jesus. Um, and there are a lot of us who have started that process already. And so if you are feeling that, that invitation, that pull, that tug, I want you to know that you're not alone, as Matt said, but this is where you have to trust me. If you're sitting here tonight and you have also gone through the process of deconstruction and you would be willing to talk to somebody else who's feeling nervous about setting down the God that no longer serves them, you would be willing to share your journey with someone else, would you put up your hand? And if you are feeling the tug to deconstruct tonight, and you would like to talk to somebody else about what their journey has been like, you can look around this room and see the hands. So take a look around the room, everyone, and know that you are not alone. There are people here who have gone ahead of you, who are coming behind you, and we are all in this together. Because as Matt said, Jesus does invite us to deconstruct. And one of the things, one of the invitations Jesus extends to us is through communion. Because at the time, the Lord's Supper was just for the Jews. And Jesus said, it's not. It's for everybody. I am opening this table to everyone. And so this is the part of our service where we do that together, where we remember that this is an open table and that there's more to learn about this Jesus that we're following. And so um, if you received your elements on the way in, you're welcome to take those in your seat. But if you're feeling comfortable and ready, we would like to try. Um, this evening, we're going to go back to serving communion um, by coming forward to receive the elements. So we're going to experiment tonight. This might be a 
total gong show and we will fix stuff for next week, but here's the plan. <laughs> um, if you are ready to receive your elements and hear the words, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you, and take your elements with your mask off, you are welcome to come up here. We're gonna, Matt and Debbie are gonna have trays. All of our elements are gluten-free tonight, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but if you're not ready, if you would prefer to stay with your prepackaged elements, totally fine. We're also gonna have Sheem standing up here with a basket of prepackaged elements, and you can pick up those elements, and Sheem's will still give you those words, um, the, that benediction over you, and then you can go back to your seat and take your elements on your own as you're comfortable. So we're gonna do just one line right here down the center. Um, we're gonna sing some songs, and while that music plays, feel free to come up as you're ready. Um, you can receive your elements, and then you can go back to your seat. Lord's Prayer. Yes. No, what? <clears throat> right, yeah. Debbie wants me to do the real stuff. Sorry, Debbie. <laughs> the night before Jesus died, he gathered in a room with his friends, and he sat around the table, and he picked up a loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we're going to do together. And then Jesus also poured wine into the cup, and he gave thanks to the Father for it. And he said, whenever you eat the bread, whenever you drink the cup, remember me until I come again. Would you stand with me? And together we're going to say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say, saying, our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I appreciate that music, faithfulness. You know, in our Christian tradition, it starts on the idea that, that fear is the beginning of wisdom, right? But it's not the middle or the end. There's a reason why throughout the Gospels in particular, every time the divine breaks through his stories, and every time the divine interrupts human affairs, it starts with the word of, don't be scared. If Jesus is the face of God, if Jesus is what God looks like, then you have nothing to be afraid of because you are loved as is right now. And Jesus comes with freedom. The question is, do we want to carry that? Patty, can you put up that quote from my message? I've, I've used this quote 10,024 different times, but it's the most powerful quote in my life. It comes from the Sufi mystic Rumi, who says, do you see the Rumi quote? Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it, yes. I promise you, you sit in that quote for a few more weeks and it will change your life. I will be here up front. Debbie for sure will be here up front if you want to have a further conversation about deconstruction or just some clarifying things. Until then though, let me end with this. Would you hold out your hands and receive these words from the heart of a good and faithful God? Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love, or what you've lost, where you've gone, or the places that you've stayed. 
Know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace. We love you. We'll see you next Wednesday night.